If you want to turn to Matthew 18, we're going to continue working our way through there. And the last time we worked our way through verses 1 to 5, and tonight I think all the further we're going to get is through verse 9. So let's pray. Let's go before the Lord with the word of prayer. Father, we just thank you once again that you've gathered us here together, and I just ask that you'll speak to all of us and speak to all of our hearts. Help me to say this, what I want to say tonight, in the right way that will be helpful and that we can all learn from your word and hear from you. And I just thank you that you'll do that for all of us here and that you'll be with us to teach us in Jesus' name. So the last time we looked at verses 1 to 5, and in verse 1 we talked about that the disciples were kind of arguing over who was going to be the highest on the pecking order. And we said, well, that's just a world mentality and Jesus said, well, that's just the way the world rulers look at things. They want to see who's going to be the most powerful, who's the one that's going to rule, be independent, the top dog. And he said, that is just the opposite of the way my kingdom's going to be established. So in verse 2, he goes on and he says he calls a little child. You can see there he calls a little child over to him who was probably about four years old to visibly demonstrate to everyone what he wants them to be. He wants them to be, he said, just like this little child. And we read in the other accounts that he put his arms around him and was actually holding the child in their midst the entire time he's talking through here. And he says that we should not want to be the powerful, but we should want to be the least. These are all the terms he used if you put all the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you put them together. He says we should be the least, not the powerful. We should be servants, not wanting to rule not desiring to be rulers over everyone. And we shouldn't want to have an independent attitude, but we should be humble and dependent, dependent on the Lord and dependent on each other. And then he also said you shouldn't just want to be the top dog in the boneyard, but you should want to be last, is what he told us. So then we moved on and, and talked about in verse 3, and he says there that unless we turn away from the worldly mentality that we all had growing up, and be converted and become like children. He says, not only then will you not be the greatest, the thing you desired so much, but he says, you won't even, any of us, we won't be able to make it into his kingdom. And that word he used, it means never, certainly not, not at all, and by no means. So he made it pretty clear to them that if we didn't become like little children and be converted, which only his Holy Spirit can do that to us, we, we don't have a chance of making it in. And then in verse 5, that was 3 and 4, we looked where he said that we must accept other little children in his kingdom. To, we shouldn't play favorites. We looked at James chapter 2 and said, he said, just don't accept those ones in your group, but we must accept all of the ones that he's accepted. And he says to accept one of them is the same or equivalent to accepting him. And that's where we ended. And that brings us to verses 6 to 9, which we'll read now. Well, we'll start in verse 5. And whoso shall receive one of such little ones in my name receives me. But, and he's basically giving the opposite here, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. 
And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. You know, one thing that can help a lot of times when you're reading a passage or a verse or let's say a chapter or a story, if you see a certain word that is repeatedly used, that means there's something about that word that's important. And so what's the word that we keep reading here in these few verses that we've read? It's used repeatedly, offend or offense. And so what he's doing here is he's warning against offenses that will come from others and also offenses that we have within ourselves. Stumbling blocks is what he's talking about. And that's what he's saying. So first he talks about offending the other children. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, verse 6, which believe in me, it's better for him than a millstone were hanged about his neck and so on. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offense comes. So we've heard before through the years that that word for offense there is a Greek word, scandalon. And what it means is to put a stumbling block or something in the way of, something, of somebody that is going to cause them to trip over it or fall. That's what the word means, or to offend. Or a lot of translations, if you have some other translations like the NIV, and I think even the New King James, they don't translate it offend like the King James. They will say to cause to sin, because in this case, that's what would happen. You'd be causing somebody to sin by something you've said or something you've done. And that's what he's talking about here. So, you know, it's talking about when you stumble, when you fall, it all is a result of walking through life. And sometimes walking through life can be embarrassing, can it? You know, you don't see some object in front of you and you're walking in a crowd and you trip over it and fall. I mean, you know, you might hear some snickers, right? Or, or some people, they're not real good about tying their shoelaces very tight. And next thing you know, their shoelace got in their way. And they tripped and, whoop, there they are. They either fell or almost fell. So that's what can happen. It's all known as stumbling. And so the expression stumbling block was made famous by William Tyndale back in his 1562 translation of the New Testament. And the stumbling block was a tree stump. It actually, the expression they used back in that day was to stumble at a block. And they would be walking through the woods and wouldn't see a tree stump, and they'd trip over it and fall. So that's where to stumble at a block or a tree stump, that's where we got that expression. It goes back to then. So we don't have very many tree stumps in our way these days. Most of our sidewalks and roads are relatively smooth. So it might not have the same impact on us, but we can imagine. But you can even think back in Palestinian days back then, it's talking about it could be a tree stump or a rock, something you trip it. They had a, if you've been over to Israel, do they have a lot of rocks, Mrs. Hamilton? They have got rocks everywhere. And they would be in the roads, and they would have ruts in the roads. So as you're walking along, it would be easy to stumble over a rock and trip. And so they would have understand that. And because the blind and the deaf especially the blind, could be easily picked on. God made a provision in the law for all the Jewish practical jokers. And here's what it is. Seriously. Leviticus 19.14 reads this. You shall not curse the deaf. So couldn't you see some guy, he knows this guy can't hear a word he's saying, and he's just letting him have it. And maybe doing it with a smile, because he doesn't know what he's saying. But he says, you don't curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind 
but you shall fear the Lord thy God. So I could see, because I'm telling you, <laughs> it happens even today when someone knows somebody has trouble seeing, some practical joker will do something to make fun of them and do something to cause them to stumble and think that's funny. And God says, I don't think that's funny, that person going through that. So he put a provision in the law. And God says, hey, don't make the blind to stumble. Don't cause them to be the butt of your joke. And Jesus is saying here in what we're reading, don't make one of my children to stumble either. Don't put something that will cause them to trip and fall by something you do or say, something that would cause them to sin. He's warning us about that or talking to us about that because he says, whoso shall offend, and that's that word, to cause to sin. One of these little ones, and he's holding that little boy the whole time he's talking. One of these little ones, do something to attempt a believer to stray away from the Lord or to stray them to sin. We'll see where that word's used in a few places here that will help illustrate it and help us to understand it. So if you'll turn just back two chapters to Matthew 16, and this is a pretty famous account, familiar account with us. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21. And it says there in verse 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and be raised again the third day. And then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an, and there's our word scandal on, an offense unto me, for you savorest not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. And then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. For what is a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So was Peter trying to lead Jesus away from the will of the Lord? I think Jesus thought he was. And Peter, I don't think Peter knew what he was doing. He was an unwitting tool of the devil. Jesus went from praising Peter for recognizing that he was the Son of God and the Christ to calling him Satan. He went from being the rock to the devil. I mean, he's got all kinds of nicknames. It's like, which one sticks? <laughs> right? He calls him the devil and he just called him the rock. But he's using that same, same thing and he's asking Peter, why are you trying to offend me, to lead me away from the way the Lord wants me to do. Lead me away from the cross. That's what he says. Look back in verse 23. Get thee behind me. He's saying this to, to Peter because Satan's speaking through Peter at this point. He's given into his influence. Get thee behind me, Satan. He says, you are an offense unto me. You're trying to drag me away from what God wants me to do. And why is that? He says, here's the reason you're doing that, Peter, because you don't yet savor the things that be of God, but your desire and the things you savor and like at this point in your life are more the things that be of men. And that's why he goes on to tell his disciples, you have got to, all of us, we have got to crucify our fleshly desires and wishes for the world. If we don't, then we're going to be a tool of the devil in a lot of ways, and it'll take us down. And that's why he tells them there in verses 24 through 26, right after that, he's saying, listen, here's the problem. If you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself and pick up that cross that Peter's trying to keep me from picking up. 
He's saying that's the way that we need to walk. That's the desires we have to have, and especially when we're talking with each other and ministering to each other, which is what our chapter here is all about. And so we're in chapter 16. If you just go to the next chapter over, we're working our way into back to chapter 18. And we have another account that leads into this where Jesus uses the same word, scandalon. So in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, to the end of it, it says, When they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does your master pay tribute? And he said, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented or stopped him, saying, well, What do you think, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? And Peter said unto him, Of strangers. And Jesus said unto him, Well, then are the children free. Verse 27, but he says, Notwithstanding that truth, lest we should, and here's our word again, scandalon, offend them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take up the fish that first comes up, and when you have opened his mouth, you shall find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. So the officials said it's a mandatory temple tax that every Jew had to pay. They came to collect from Jesus. And he's saying, hey, should the owner of the house, does the owner have, of the house have to pay his own rent? He's asking Peter. And if a king conquers a land, then who does he get the tax from? He gets the tax from those that he conquered, not from his own children. So he's saying, I'm the one, I'm the temple. Why do I have to pay the temple tax? I own the temple. I made everything that here is on this earth. I'm the creator of all things. Do I need to pay tax and tribute and rent? <laughs> he's saying, obviously, he doesn't. He doesn't have to. But he says, here's the thing. As great as he is and as powerful, Jesus could, could he is the biggest, the baddest, if you want to say that, like we're talking about who's the greatest. He really is. Because didn't he say at one time, one word for me and 10,000 angels will come down here to defend me. I mean, that's who this man is. The God-man. But he's telling Peter, hey, even though I don't have to pay anything, and they couldn't make me if they wanted to in a million years, nevertheless, he says, I don't want to offend these people. And that's how we learn our lesson. So we don't always take the rights we have because the Lord Jesus Christ didn't. He said, so we don't offend them. They look at me as just being any other Jewish man. And the Lord's like, I don't want to keep this gospel from going forth. I don't want people to have trouble receiving from me because they perceive me as being arrogant or whatever. Because I'm walking this earth as a man right now. And so lest we offend them, then you go on and we'll just go on and pay this temple tax. I don't want to offend them, he said. So he's showing us right there. We're saying that is the heart of a little child demonstrated in our Lord. That's the heart of humility coming forth. Peter, just go on and pay that tax. Don't offend the, any of these little ones that might believe in me. I don't want to be a stumbling block to them. So we'll also see how this principle, it's all going to come together here. So if we turn to 1 Corinthians 8, so we don't want to offend each other. We learn our lesson from our Lord that we just saw there in Matthew 17. So put something in Matthew 8 and turn to 1 Corinthians 8. So that word offend is used quite a bit. We'll read the whole chapter here. It's not that long, 13 verses. 1 Corinthians 8, and it says now, Paul writes, now it's touching things offered unto idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge just will make you proud, but love will build others up, will edify. And if any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing as yet he ought to know. But if a man loves God, then the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, well, we know 
that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. But though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is just but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, he says, we know that, but he says, however, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So these Corinthians, they, they're coming out of total pagan idolatry that are coming into the church and being saved. They don't have all the knowledge that a Jewish Christian would have. I mean, they've been taught from the time they came out of the womb that there is only one God. Idolatry had been totally wiped out of Israel by the time of Jesus. Well before that, when they came back after being sent into exile, you never again hear the prophets getting on their case for idolatry. That was dealt with. <laughs> the Babylonian exile took care of that. So they would have known that. But he says, how be it, verse 7, not in every man is that knowledge. For some with conscience of an idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commends us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a, there it is. Well, that's not the same word, actually, it's another word, a stumbling block, a literal stumbling block, something to trip over to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish. Wow, for whom Christ died. But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, he says what? You sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat makes my brother to offend, there's our word, scandalon, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. So Paul through there, he's saying, hey, we know an idol is nothing, and we know that there is really only one God. And so when you say that you know that, and when you have that kind of knowledge to eat meat that's offered to an idol, that idol's nothing, guess what? It's just meat then, isn't it? It's nothing. And he's saying, now, yeah, you're free to eat that if you have that knowledge. But not everyone, he says, know that because some, he says, they still think that idol and the God behind that idol is real. So their knowledge is weak. It's not as strong as the Jewish knowledge would have been. And he says, when they see you eat that meat that is offered to that idol that they think is real, then they're emboldened to do the same thing. They think it's okay. They think here's a, a strong Christian and they're doing that, then it must be okay for me to do that. They don't realize that you realize this, this idol's nothing. They don't know that you don't think like they do. So Paul says when you're with someone like that, that it's going to defile their conscience because they don't have the knowledge you have. He says the best thing you can do and what he would do is just abstain from eating because that's what he's saying there in verse 8. You don't have to eat. He says if we eat, verse 8, we're not any better for eating. And if we don't eat, we're not any better for not eating. It's, it's not doing anything for us as far as gaining points with God either way, whether we eat meat or don't eat meat. But he's saying what you need to do, what all of us need to do, he's telling them, is verse 9, take heed. That means watch out, lest by any means the liberty you have through your knowledge becomes a stumbling block to those that are weak. Because he's saying if that man sees you eating that meat that's offered to that idol that he thinks is real, and he starts eating it, what's he doing? He's violating the first commandment, isn't he? 
You shall have no other gods before me, none other gods. And it's getting him in trouble with the Lord. That's what he's saying there. Because that weak brother, he says, through the knowledge you have and not using some wisdom, he says, that weak brother shall perish for whom Christ died. And he says, when you do that, this young weak brother in the Lord, when you cause that to happen, he says, you're not just sinning against him. He's saying you're sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse 12. When you sin against him, you're sinning against Christ. And that takes us all the way back to verse 5 of Matthew 18. When Jesus said, whoso shall receive one such little child, who do you receive? He says, you receive me. Because of that union we have with Christ to receive one of his is to receive him. So he goes on in verse 13. He says, so if eating meat is potentially in any way going to cause this weak brother that I'm with to stumble, he says, I will never eat meat again because I don't need it. As long as the, earth, as the world stands, Paul says, I'll ne never eat meat again if it's going to be a problem for somebody that's weak. I, I don't need it. So how does that work for us, that principle that's there? How does that work for us? How would that apply to us? Well, one way I would say, and this isn't going to be nothing I'm going to say once again, nothing new under the sun, but it's something we need to think about, and that is, let's take the matter of drinking alcohol. Now, nowhere in the New Testament does it say if you drink alcohol, you will go to hell or that it's drinking alcohol is a sin. It doesn't say that anywhere. And Jesus did turn water into wine. But here's the problem, the country we live in. We've heard this before, right? Let me tell you a little story here. You think you, you can't call somebody problems? So I'm going to tell on myself with my son Thomas. So this is 20 years ago, we're down in Florida, and we wanted to go as a family to Bush Gardens. So I call him up. I said, you know, outside of getting a second mortgage, you know, whatever, and a loan, what, what can I do to get into your little theme park to see the animals cheap? And they're like, well, you bring any Anheuser-Busch product, just a empty whatever, and you can come in for really cheap, like half price. I'm like, wow, that's great. So <laughs> only trouble is, you know what they make, right? Anheuser-Busch. Well, I went up to the little store up the road there, and they had a non-alcoholic, non-alcoholic beer there. I'm like, all right, I'm going to buy one non-alcoholic. It's the only time I've ever done it in my life, y'all, 20 years ago. Never done it before, never done it since. And I took it back, and I mean, I liked beer back in the day, but I mean, I, I don't now. But anyways, so I took that beer, and Thomas, well, you're about seven, about seven years old. I wasn't thinking, I'm like, I'll drink this, it's no big deal, and we'll have an empty bottle and whatever. I don't want to, well, I pour it out. It's not, it's not alcoholic. Well, little did I know, it caused you big problems, didn't it? It really did. I caused him to stumble over that. He's like, my dad, I can't believe my dad did that. And it caused him, I'm, I'm like, Thomas, what do you mean? It's not alcoholic. Well, it didn't matter. I'm telling you, I mean, I was so tore up over that and apologized to you for years, didn't I? Because he didn't get over it for years. I'm like, man, are you still hung up on that, Thomas? I mean, but that's the thing we got to think about, isn't it? So to me, it's like nothing. I mean, I knew I, I never was planning on buying another one and just bought that one. But I'm saying, boy, if I had that to do over again, I'd have poured that thing down the drain and had an empty bottle, right? I didn't need to be messing with that. So what's happening now is, and I know this is happening with this new generation of Christians coming up, conservative evangelical Christians, Calvinist. In my school where I went to school, we had a class discussion one time. 
and they're talking about should we be free to drink liquor when we go out for dinner for just any time or sit around and drink a beer and all that. And I couldn't believe it. Our class was split literally in half. So there's half of, the, of what would be the old school, and I was in that half. And then there's half of them that's like, hey, we're free. We can do all that. It's no big deal. And I'm, and I'm like, wow. And they went at it. I just sat there and listened. But we're getting to where that's kind of becoming the new young evangelical, which is why I'm talking about it, thing is to have a little wine with your meal because it's not a sin. It's just a sin to get drunk. And I'm saying it's leading to problems, I believe. It's going to lead to a lot of problems. Now, I know of two cases Okay, I've been a Christian since 1981, so from 1981 to now, I know of at least two cases of people that before they got saved, they drank, they got delivered of all that, and then with one case, it started back with wine coolers. Just a little wine cooler here and there. Next thing you know, they're back into having alcohol, major alcohol problems, and fell away. I know of another case of a person, it's like, I'm just going to have wine with my meals, and that's getting to be pretty common. It went from wine with your meals, well, that got me pretty relaxed. Maybe I'll have a little wine at home. Then it's like wine every night, and then it's a problem, a big problem. And it, the thing is, with all of that, it doesn't end up just being a problem for the person. It ends up being a problem for their family and a lot of other people. You sit out on your front porch, and you're free to drink a beer, and you're free to drink a beer on your front porch. It's not going to send you to hell. I would never, you'll never hear me preach that that's going to happen. But what you need to think about is what we're talking about now. And so here comes your neighbor driving by. They know you're a Christian. You've been talking to them about Jesus. And there you are sitting there with your beer on the front porch. Well, guess what that neighbor doesn't know? He doesn't know if that's the only one you're going to drink, the only one you've drank in a year, or if this is the last part of a case you're finishing up. And he's like, well, man, of that guy, and he's a holy man by the way he talks, and he's got the nicest family in the world. And if he can drink Anheuser-Busch, why can't I? And look what you've done. Shouldn't we be like with Paul? A beer doesn't do anything for you either way. Well, a lot of them would. But it's like we can just do without that as long as the world stands, in my opinion. Now, Brother Hamilton, that's the what he taught, and I totally agree with him sitting out there. So we got to watch that our freedom that we have can be a stumbling block not only to others but also to ourselves. I've seen it happen more than once. So how about this one? You're going to all love this one. You know, what about boys and girls dressing modestly when they dress? So, you know, it used to be in our churches, what was it, jean dresses at all times. No matter what you did, it was the jean dress. <laughs> and I'd have to say, I mean, I think that's a good thing. We're basically delivered of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> and if they make a comeback, uh, well done, or so be it. I guess you couldn't lust after somebody in one of those things, for sure. We're safe there. But hey, it, and I know, listen, it works both ways because we have a famous Christian celebrity football player that can't seem to get on a team, if you know who I mean. Well, that guy is walking around Mr. Stud without his shirt on. Well, what's the deal with that? I would never do that as a Christian. I don't have the body now, but if I did... <laughs> I don't think that's right, honestly. So I'm saying it's boys and girls. I think it works both ways. Because why I don't think a girl has to wear a dress everywhere, I don't think the Bible says a dress everywhere she goes. I do think whether you're a boy or a girl, you should dress modestly at all times. Now, is that hard? Because I've seen dresses that are way too tight and revealing, and the other way around. 
So we're talking about causing somebody to stumble. And I'm saying, I got saved when I was 21 years old. What you girls and boys don't want to do, or older people, it doesn't matter, but here's what you don't want to have. We just read, didn't we, that through your knowledge, through what you're doing, you cause a weak brother to perish, and you sin against Christ. And so here you are. Now, an old guy like me, you know, you got your saran wrap clothes on that are just clinging to you like saran wrap and about that thin. I mean, I could look and just look the other way and no big deal, you know. But you got somebody, we're talking about somebody that's weak. What about somebody that just got saved and they're not real strong and they're just, you know, and they're in their 20s. And we know you're in the 20s, you're in the prime of life. You're not on the downward trend like somebody that's older. But just think about that. It may not be that easy for them, both ways. And you dress in a way that's revealing, and that person, it's hard to get that out of their mind when you're just in front of them that way. And you, you really, we need to think that way, don't we? We don't want to cause somebody to stumble. And so just, we just need to dress modestly. And I've seen the catalogs, the women catalogs. They have got some really nice-looking, classy, not jean dress things that women can wear that are classy-looking, that are very modest. And I think that's what we're looking at here. That's what we're talking about. Because we don't want to cause other, each other to stumble, do we? Because we're going to talk about lust here in a little bit. We live in a culture that's that way, and it's coming at us from the world. In TV, we don't need it to be coming at us from each other, it's, you know, for young people. And so what about the other thing? What about the offense about the poor and awkward brother? The poor brother. We talked about that last week in James 2. Read that where... You bring the rich person up, and you tell the poor person, sit back. Well, I doubt if anybody's going to do that in here. But there's other ways that can be done we talked about. You know, you, so we need to be generous. Can I put it that way? With who we include and invite to be part of our Bible studies or our fellowships when we have somebody over. Because we don't want somebody to stumble in the, in the sense that, man, it's like nobody really seems to care about me. I'd like to come and be part of that group or a group, any group, but I never get invited. And so they could, in a sense, stumble in that way. Believe me, I know that it happens because I've talked to some people. I mean, right in these walls, it happens that people are offended that they're not included and they feel like outsiders within the church. And so we just need to be praying about that and just try to be generous. I'm not getting on anybody's case. I don't have anybody particularly in mind with any of this stuff. It's just a way that we need to include others. And we, we talked about last week, we need to look condescend, Paul says, not to be condescending, but condescend to people of low estate. And that's just the opposite of the way we generally conduct ourselves in the world. The list could be endless, couldn't it? Ways you can cause people to stumble and offend, like by not paying your bills, maybe by not keeping your word can cause people problems. What you watch on TV and movies that you go to can cause somebody to stumble. So that's what I see there in 1 Corinthians 8 and what, and what he is talking about and what I believe the Lord's talking about, that we need to be careful not to cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. And I'd like to look at another aspect of that where it uses that same word offend over in Romans 14, if you could turn there, please. And we've heard a lot of teaching, I know, from Romans 14. So I'd like to read the first 13 verses there. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations, King James. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not. 
and let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. Who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day regards it unto the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he that eats not to the Lord, he eats not and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Verse 10, but why do you judge your brother, or why do you set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather. Make a judgment on this, that no man put a stumbling block or, and here they translate it, occasion to fall. That's our word, offend. An occasion to fall in his brother's way. Don't put a reason to put him into sin in his way or a stumbling block. He says, make that your judgment, not judging what he's doing, but make sure that what you're doing is not causing him to stumble. But a lot of the teaching we've heard is, at least I want to talk about now, is in view of going to the medical profession, whether we do or don't. So, We've kind of said, and it's kind of understood, so if someone wants to go, let's just say to the dentist, and they don't have a problem with that, that that's his business. And I would agree with that. That's his business, if they want to do that. Because look down in verse 5, it says here, one man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. And what does it say at the end of verse 5? Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. And I would say it this way. If you're not fully persuaded that God is going to heal you without the use of medical science, then it would be better for you to maintain that route. So the old rule of thumb we heard, it's a good rule of thumb. If you've got questions, you're not sure about things, and you've got questions about healing, how it works, whether you have faith, whether God will always heal you like we talked about Sunday, then that's not the time to throw your medicine. You need to get your questions answered first. And you have to be fully persuaded that God will do it, and it'll work for you. And until that time, it's no condemnation. No, no one's on anybody's case. But we do need to be working that way if that's how you want to work. If you're looking to have the Lord heal you, if you've got to work on it. It's not going to just happen as the years roll by, if you understand what I mean. If you keep it on the shelf, it'll just keep collecting layers and layers and layers of dust to get to that point. So it is something you have to work at. But if that's where you're at, that, that is not a problem. And I don't think anybody here is condemning anyone for choices that they've made. So in verse 3, he talks about that some are weak in the faith. Verse 2, for one who is weak eat herbs. And there's a lot of reasons. I'm saying I don't want to get into all of them tonight. There's a whole lot of reasons that people are struggling with faith. And we talked about some of that Sunday. But the thing is, that doesn't mean that that is to become our norm or the standard for our church. Because our church has traditionally taught that, according to the Bible, and we're saying 
we're back to day one when I started here. It's the apostles' doctrine is how we base what we do and believe as a church. And the Bible clearly teaches that God always heals by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of our Lord Jesus. That is God's method of healing, and that is all he needs. And that's all you'll ever find in the Old and New Testament. I'm just saying that's all you'll ever find. That's the way God's, his method of healing. And here's my point. There are some who live by that conviction too, but that's all he needs. And the reality is, though, right now, we have people in our church that we're all across the board. We, we have different levels of faith all across the board, and that's just where we're at as a church right now, and that's, that's where we're at. That's fine. So th anything I'm saying, this is not meant as a rebuke or a thing of condemnation, but here's my point, and this is what we're seeing here in Romans 14. This is the point. We all need to have respect for each other wherever we're at if you understand what I'm saying by that. So Paul's point is here, if a brother is weak in the faith, he's saying don't criticize him for that. He's getting help and he's weak in the faith and that's where he's at for whatever reason and for however long he's been here, he's saying don't criticize him for that. That's what we have in verse one. It says he that is weak in the faith, he says receive him into your fellowship, but not, don't receive him. That doubtful disputation means to criticize his opinions or don't dispute him over different opinions. So in his way of seeing things, this is the way he sees it unto the Lord before the Lord. He's saying, don't bring him in in these weak, just to criticize him. That's not what we should be doing. But on the other hand, he's also saying, don't let the one who is weak criticize or judge or pull down the one who is attempting to trust the Lord. That's what I see in verse 3. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not. But he also says the other side, doesn't he? Let not him which eats not, judge him that eats. So it works both ways. It works both ways. Here's what I want to say. A brother or sister who has decided that they're going to trust the Lord to heal them without the use of medicine or doctors doesn't need to hear about what they have and what treatments are available for what they have. Because I'm going to tell you, if you're over the age of 20, you already know that. A person already knows that. They've made a decision that I know what's available. I know what's probably going on with me, but I'm choosing to trust the Lord. So you're not helping them in their faith to let them know, man, it looks bad. You look really bad. You know, they got help for that. And I, I'm saying, let me use myself as an example. I'm not picking on anybody. I've had people say that to me through the years here. You know, there's help for what you're going through. I'm like, you think I don't know that? I know that. You're not helping my faith at all by telling me that. And that's the only point I'm trying to make here. So they've made a decision to trust the Lord without using any means. So what we don't want to have, we talked about Peter. Jesus said, this is God's will for me to go to that cross. And Peter's trying to get him away from that. And if a person has determined they're going to trust the Lord for their healing, you don't want to be like Peter and get him off that path of trusting the Lord. So verses 10 to 13, it says this, But why do you judge your brother? Why do you set your brother at naught? For we shall all, we're all going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So every one of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, he says. But judge this rather, that we don't put a stumbling block 
And like I said, that works both ways. Or an occasion to sin, to fall in your brother's way. Here's a principle we need to understand and get back to. When Jesus went to, to raise Jairus' daughter, you know what happened when he got there? He said, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And do you know what happened? There was people there that did not believe and trust in God. And you know what it said they did? They laughed him to scorn. And did he want to have those people in the room with him? It wasn't helping Jesus. He had to exercise faith. And you know what he did? Do we know what he did? He put them all out, didn't he? Put them out because it was going to take faith to raise that girl from the dead. So he kept Peter, James, and John were the ones with him because he's going to train in them for this is how you minister by faith. Because Peter said the same thing later to Tabitha. The same words that Jesus said. And so he's learning. But the point I want to make is, you know, he got the doubters out of the room. And so we have adults in here now that are trusting the Lord for very serious things. Very serious things. And they don't need to hear about all the medical facts, all the medical reports, and things like that. It's not helping their faith any. Now, if they ask you, or you ask them, <laughs> or somebody asks somebody, hey, what's going on? And th then that's a whole other ballgame, right? If they ask you and you, they know you know something, that's, that's their problem then if they ask you. But don't volunteer information if they're trusting the Lord. And you've got to watch about your own things. So you, you went that route. Nobody's condemning anybody. But you've got to watch. There's people you're talking to that they aren't talking about the situation they're maybe going through. And I know this is true. But they're going through the very thing you're explaining, all the symptoms, all everything you went through. And they're trying to trust the Lord, and they're having to, they don't want to have to hear all that, okay? So we just, all I'm saying is we just need to use some wisdom. And I like to just say we just need to have respect for each other, both directions, where we're at. That's, that's all I'm saying. Is that okay? Are we good with that? <laughs> People need words of faith. And I'll tell you, Brother Hamilton, if you were trusting the Lord, because... He didn't even, if he knew you were trusting the Lord in a trial, he didn't want to know any of the details of your situation because he wanted to exercise faith with you. That's the way, and I'm telling you, I experienced that with him. One time I was at a serious trial, started, he just cut me off. He says, brother, we're just going to trust God together. Amen. And I got, I got the message, and I was glad for it. I thought, praise God. Why do we, his whole thing was, why are we going to glorify the devil in what he's doing when our prayer is that God has healed us from the effects of the devil? And I think that is a good way to look at it. So anybody that's going the other route, there's no condemnation here. And if you are and you're currently in that situation, I will sincerely pray for you and with you and support you with where you're at. I will. Whether anyone else will, I'm telling you, I will. It's, it's not an issue with that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we just need to be mindful of where each other is at and watch what we discuss so we don't undermine and it could be like Peter. You're not meaning to do that. I'm not saying anybody is intentionally doing that, okay? I don't think that is the case. Not even intentionally, but we don't want to unintentionally hinder somebody that's trusting the Lord. Amen? Amen. So let's go back to Matthew 18. The trouble with bringing up these topics I'm bringing up is that's all people will think about. They don't hear anything else you say. <laughs> so, but listen up here. We'll finish up. So we're into verse 7, Matthew 18, 7. And look what Jesus goes on to say. So he says, don't offend, verse 6, one of those little ones. Better to have a millstone hang around your neck. In verse 7, he says, speaks to the world. He says, oh, woe unto the world because of those scandalons, those offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, 
but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. And here's the thing. None of us want to have a woe spoken over us by the Lord Jesus Christ, do you? In the world, out of the world. But he says, offenses, these things that are going to try to lead you away from Christ, he says they are going to come. He's saying they have to come. But from the world, he's saying, but woe to the world. And they have to come to test us and prove us to see where we're at. But he says, woe to that person, if you want to put it this way, that cooks them up. The person out there in the world that dreams up these schemes to try to get you away from the Lord. And they do that a lot of times. They purposely will try to get Christians to stumble and get away from the Lord. So, you know, woe to that drug dealer that entices somebody to get back into drug use. Or some money-hungry swindler that gets one of the children, one of the believers, back into, let's put it this way, into gambling with their money in any way, in any form, however you want to look at that. Or the spiritual Judas, which we'll see here in the book of Revelation, who teaches weak believers that fornication and R-rated movies and having intimate relations with women is okay. And you think, well, who would do that? Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. We'll see somebody that did that. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, actually two places in Revelation 2 we have that going on. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, it says this. The Lord says, But I have a few things against thee, because you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to do what else? To commit fornication. So he's saying there's people there that are saying it's all right. You can commit fornication and still be right with the Lord. And I'm saying there are a lot of churches now. They're admitting people as members that are living in fornication. I'm telling you, literally, and churches endorsing that that aren't too far away from here that are well-known. I know what I'm talking about on that. So to say it can't happen, I'm telling you, it's happening. And look in verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, he says in verse 20, chapter 2, because you allow that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, so she appears spiritual, but what does she do? She teaches and seduces my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And he says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, but she did not repent. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. I will give to every one of you according to your words." That's two places right there in the book of Revelation. That's the early church. They got that's major problems going on there. Teaching, taking place, that committing fornication is okay. And you think, that, to me, that is like crazy who would fall into that. But yet it happens, and it has happened. So back to Matthew 18. We so far have talked about offenses that come from without in verses 6 and 7. And the Lord goes on to talk about here in verses 8 and 9, offenses that will come from within us, not from without us. The others were outside. These are from within. Verse 8, wherefore, if your hand or your foot, that's our hand or our foot, offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. 
And if thine eye, so he's got your hand, your foot, and now your eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter in to life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. So Jesus is saying whatever you have in you, on you, your hand, your eye, your foot, that would draw you away from him, cause you to be offended, stumble, cause you to sin, he says you have got to get rid of it in a drastic way. I mean, that is very drastic measures he's talking about there. And John Owen had this sentence that I think sums up what Jesus is saying. John Owen said this. He's a famous Puritan writer. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's really, that's a way of summing up what Jesus said right there. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so how serious is what he's saying? How serious should we take what the Lord Jesus is saying here? Well, how does he end every one of them? He's saying if we don't do it, if we don't get rid of these things that offend us and take us away from him, where does he say we'll end up? Where does he say? He says it at the end of verse 8 and the end of verse 5, to be cast into everlasting fire or into hellfire at the end of verse 9. And I would say hell, that's pretty serious. It really is. Falling and burning for all eternity with no hope for escape just because we didn't deal with things that were taking us away from the Lord. 27 times the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament spoke of hell more than anybody else. And two times it's right here that he speaks of hell. The reason I think he didn't get specific right here in this particular section is because it's different for every one of us. I mean, every one of us here, if we lined everyone up and say, what is the one thing that is, tends to draw you away from the Lord? It would probably be, there'd be some the same, but it'd be a whole lot of different things we would hear. And you'd be like, wow, that's what gets you? That doesn't get me. And, you know, if we compared notes, probably better we didn't. But, you know, for some people, it's like I talked about before, it's that drinking problem they had. And that's the thing within them they're, they're having to battle. Or for others, it's drugs. And some, maybe it's debt. You know, they can drink it and no big deal, but wanting to get in debt, that's a problem. Or it could be other things like jealousy, anger. Anger is a big issue with a lot of people. Gossip or pride, that's something we all have to deal with there, isn't it? Religious spirits or just something like laziness. The list could be endless, but... Any sin that's within us that is going to take us away, we have got to crucify. And that's what James says in James 1, 14 and 15. He says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away, and James says, of his own lust. So every person has that thing that is their own lust that has to be crucified, whatever it is. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, and through that lust that is in a person, they are then enticed. Then when lust hath conceived like giving birth, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's done with you, he says, it brings forth death, which is what the Lord's telling us there. We've got to be killing that or it will be killing us in the end. And that's Romans 8. We, through the spirit he's given us, have to put to death the flesh if we want to live. But there is a place where when he talks about the hand, the eye, and the foot, he gets specific, more specific than he does here. And that's back in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery, Jesus said. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. 
And he goes on to say, if your eye offends these, pluck it out. For it's better to end, enter into life with one eye than to have both eyes and to be cast into hell. And he goes on and on and talks about that. And I'm saying, I don't think in the age we live in, this pornographic, internet, lust-filled age that we live in, we can talk about this too much. I really don't. And so Jesus says, you'd better deal, in Matthew 5, you'd better deal with that lust in a drastic way. He's saying you need to avoid eye contact in a sexual way with women at all cost. So he, we've talked about this, he is not literally talking about plucking out your literal eyes, is he? But the equivalent of it, the equivalent of taking out your eyes. Because how much pornography is a blind man going to look at? None. He's not going to look at any. And Job said this in Job 31.1. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes. He made an agreement with his eyes, and he said that I should think on a maid. He didn't say just look, but to think. Because a lot of lusting can go on in the thought realm, and you've got to crucify that as much as where you look. And that's where the battle rages, especially if you're someone that has given yourself over to lustful thoughts. And when you, when you put an end to that and you say, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I'm putting an end to looking and thinking about things that I've looked on in the past, you're going to have a battle there. And it's something that where you've got to resist the devil and eventually he will flee and God could make that victory for you a more constant thing. But when he's saying thinking, he's saying seeing and meditating which is considering, and that will lead to lust about women. So well, you can't help that thought that the devil will try to put in your head. That's not the sin, is it? It hasn't conceived at that point, but it's when you think on it and meditate on it, because you can, we can, by the power and grace of God, control what we think. We don't have to think lustful thoughts. You can make yourself think about a forest right now if you choose to, but the devil's going to try to keep you from doing that. Or thinking about whatsoever is good, lovely, pure. He's going to be, you're fighting the spirit. <laughs> it's a battle. So you've got to determine that, hey, that is gone. I've made a covenant and I'm going to keep that covenant by the grace of God. So let me say, did lust almost bring King David down? It was that look, that look of Bathsheba. It sure did, except by the grace of God. And that lustful look that he had then when he should have been out fighting with the other kings. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing. That almost brought him down, and he paid a heavy price, didn't he, of chastisement. I'll tell you, I guarantee you, he was controlling his eyes a whole lot better the rest of his life. But what about his son Solomon? You think David might have kind of set a bad example for him? I think he might have, because David had a lot of wives, and it says in Deuteronomy for a king that a king shouldn't multiply wives to himself. And the Lord said, why? So that those wives don't turn his hearts away. Because a lot of the times, Solomon, look, he married 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, that's as many people live in Shelbyville, practically. That's a lot of people. But a lot of those marriages are alliances with kings. They marry the daughters, so it's not all purely sexual. But that is still a lot of women. And they did turn his heart away, didn't they? But the perfect illustration is Samson. Samson illustrates the problem of lust with the eyes that it will bring you into death perfectly. The old be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So I'm always going to have us turn it. We don't need to turn it. I will tell you what it says. You can read it later. Here's the progression of Samson and his problem with his eyesight. And he didn't need glasses. 
that he had a problem with his eyesight. In Judges 14, verses 1 and 2, he says this. Here it starts off here. I've seen a woman in Timath of the daughters of the Philistines. He tells his parents, I've seen this woman. And he says, go get her for me. Starts off there. Then in a few chapters later, 16, it says he went to Gaza and he saw a harlot. He saw a harlot and went in under her. And just a few verses after that, he's still going. Must have been a young man. Says it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman whose name was Delilah. And there I'm going to say he lusted with his eyes one too many times. Got him in trouble because a few verses after that, she being the woman she was, she finally got him to tell her what no one else could find out where his power was. And she knew, oh, he's telling me the truth now. Cut off his hair and he's done. He's like any other man. And so what does it say? She got him asleep between her knees and cut off all of his hair. When you're given over to lust like that, you don't realize that you've, you've lost yourself with the Lord. You justify it too much. And it says Samson didn't know that the Lord had departed from him. And the Philistines come in and he's trying to act like everything's as good as it was before. And guess what? It didn't happen. And so what happened was because Samson would not regulate his eyes and control his eyes and what they were looking on, God did it for him through the Philistines. Because it says here, the Philistines, they took him. They came on him with Delilah and with his hair cut off. They took him and put out his eyes. Been good for him if that had happened a long time before that and brought him down to Gaza. And there he ground, it says, in the prison. And they just mocked him and made fun of him. Here's this mighty warrior of Israel. Now he doesn't have any eyes, and we're just all having a party and laughing at him. So it appears at that point in the story that it's all over for Samson. It looks like sin had won, lust had won, and the devil had dominion over him and is just laughing and mocking at him, right? And have you ever felt like that in your sin, to where it's like this sin I should have dominion over it, but it seems like it's got dominion over me. And it may be some young man in here tonight is having that problem or an older person. I don't know. I don't know of anyone. Honestly, I don't know. But it could very well be someone's having that problem with pornography and feeling like it has just got me. I don't have any power and God has left me. But listen, what happened with Samson? God didn't abandon him. He really didn't. Because the grace of God caused Samson, just like it did that prodigal son, to repent and come to himself. And how is that represented? That God hadn't abandoned him? Guess what started happening? His hair started growing back. They should have kept him shaved and bald, shouldn't they? <laughs> Me and Mr. Rudy could laugh at that. Should have kept him shaved and bald, but his hair started growing, which mine hasn't. But God had not abandoned Samson to his sin. But guess what? He got chastised just like David, didn't he? But through that chastisement, he pursued him and brought him back. And that is going to be what we're going to talk about next week. That if you're his child, God will pursue us and bring us back even if we've gotten into sin. That's how humble our God is to come after us and the Lord Jesus Christ to help us and brought him back. So we've got to deal with sin so it's not dealing with us. That's what we read there through verse 9. To sum up what we said in the last two weeks, what is biblical Christianity according to Jesus? It's becoming just like a little child. He's still holding that four-year-old when, when he's saying all these things we talked about tonight. 
But he's saying when you do become a little child, we need to make sure that we respect the other little children that are around us, so to speak, right? The other believers. We've got to show respect for them in all ways, respect for each other. And so we don't want to do things that will offend each other in any way and cause people to leave the, the faith because Jesus says if we do that, it would be better than a millstone. And the Jews were scared that they were not seafaring people. And the idea, this millstone was a huge millstone. They had a small one and a huge one. And the idea of that thing being tied around your neck and cast into the sea was horrifying to a Jew. Oh, what a way to die. Never get out of the bottom of that ocean doing that. He's saying that's how serious they would have taken that. And he's saying don't cause any of my little ones to stumble. You don't want that to happen. It's a dire warning he's given to them. And anything in ourselves that would take us away from the Lord, whether it's lust or worry or anger or gossip or we'll see at the end of this chapter, unforgiveness, that's a big one. That's a big one for all of us to deal with. He's saying we need to cut it off. We need to kill it or it will drag us into hell. So God knows, and that's why we're gonna, what we're going to talk about next week. He knows that we're just flesh and that we're going to miss it at times, right? He doesn't cast his, his children off all through the Bible. He never did, whether it's Peter, David, any of them. Even Moses got chastised, didn't he? Because he says if we don't get chastised, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to be kids that are going to need to be chastised because if we don't get chastised, we know what Hebrews 12 says, we're illegitimate children. We're all going to get chastised. Everybody in this room is going to miss it and sin, and God is going to have to get his spiritual, supernatural whip out and wear us out. All of us. We've all experienced that. So how are we any better than each other in any sense of the word? We've all had to experience chastisement. And a lot of times it's not because we've done an intentional sin. It's the word. It means training. And it's maybe you don't know something's wrong in the inside of you, but through this trial, God will bring it out. Or something you do, you realize, man, I never knew that was in me. And he causes your circumstances in your life to bring that forth so that he can deliver you from that because he loves you. And he knows that the best thing for us is to be holy, whether we know that or not. And a lot of times the word holy, you're like, that doesn't sound like fun, but it is the way we'll be the most happy. <laughs> so he knows in this present world, it's going to be hard and not just hard. It will be impossible for us to make it without his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit. But... Here's what I want to end with. He will give us all the grace we need if we'll just approach him humbly as little children. He'll give us all the grace we need if we approach him that way. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's pray. And Lord, once again, we do thank you for the words you've given us and the words of Jesus that we can have light and know how you want us to live in this present evil world. And I just ask, Father, you will cause us all to understand and see that we cannot be offensive to each other and, and not to put a stumbling block in our brother's way, that that would be offending you when we do that. And we just, I just ask that you'll give us all that concern and respect for each other that we should have. And we thank you for the message you've given us tonight out of Matthew 18 and for speaking to all of us. And we do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.